0: When you're willing to be vulnerable and admit your mistakes, when you're willing to sit in just the discomfort of not knowing the solution, I think that's when you really garner that connection and that feeling of, hey, at least you're in this with me. To be truly effective as a leader, you need
1: empathy. And that means working to see things through someone else's eyes. I'm Rebecca Mutter, and this is Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. Hannah Song is the VP and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for Children's Hospital Los Angeles. The last 18 months revealed much about the human condition. It seems like finally racism and bias are being confronted head-on and getting the attention needed to move the needle. Hannah is working to embed DEI in a way that creates sustainable change and move this critical topic from a headline to values we can all live by. Yet Hannah acknowledges that this is a process and we all make mistakes. In this episode, you'll hear how owning your mistakes is essential in a leader and how the gift of forgiveness can help move us forward. But first, let's hear how Hannah got into healthcare and the changes she hopes to see.
0: I started in higher education, actually, and in my work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, as you can imagine, when George Floyd hit, everyone, every industry was like, what are we doing? What have we done? What have we not done? How can we grow in this area? And I think healthcare is the exact same way. Anything that deals with people, right? We have diversity. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know if we have enough of it, whatever that enough looks like. And then once we have it, how do we make sure everyone's mixing? What does inclusion look like? How do we ensure equitable outcomes and access, et cetera? So when Children's Hospital Los Angeles opened a position, their first inaugural full-time Chief Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Officer. Their mission, if you don't know CHLA, uh, is so palpable and bringing hope to children. I have three kids of my own. Of course, I wanted to be part of this. And in talking to the C-suite, it was not just this perfunctory superficial role. It was really like, how can we embed DEI? How can we ensure that we are looking at everything we do with this DEI lens? So I knew it was time for me to make a pivot into an industry that really is near and dear to my heart and in a leadership structure that really supported this kind of change.
1: There's never been a better time, I think, to be in healthcare than right now. And the work around DEI has never been more important than it is today. So your impact, I'm sure, is already being felt. How did you get started with the DEI piece as your passion? Was there an aha moment that you had where you were like, this is where I want my work sort of to center
0: I go back to my kids, right? I teach a stats class called Me Search is Research. And I think so much of why we do the things we do, why we choose the pathways we choose or the interests or the passion projects that we have is really driven by um, something personal. And my kids, as they were going through Uh, elementary school and kind of dealing with these dynamics and even this George Floyd incident when they were trying to process what they were seeing on the news, I realized really quickly they didn't have the language. They just knew something was weird. And I realized we need to have these kinds of conversations way before we translate some of these values and paradigms in the workplace. And so in, in trying like every mom does, right? Wanting the world to be a better place for their kids and and children um, across the world. I think I just wanted to be part of something that would make a very differential impact and honestly was such a need. And adults are no different, let's be honest. We're just a little more respectful and professional in the way we deal with interpersonal dynamics. But oftentimes, especially in the DEI work, when we're trying to attract diversity, we'll often hire you because you're different, and then fire you because you're too different, right? We don't know what to do and and how to combat some of the affinity bias we might have because we really like to be around people who are like us. And so when we have people who aren't like us, we really don't know how to you know communicate, let alone work with them. So
1: interesting how you say that we hire people because they're different, but then we fire them because they're too different. And how do we create environments where people can feel that they belong, regardless of like sort of putting in quotations how different they are?
0: I think it has to be intentional and strategic and really evidence-driven. So in this work, you'll hear in, in popular nomenclature, right, DEI. Every time it's like DEI, DEI. It's like, it's no, it's three different things, right? Diversity is really different than equity and inclusion. Yes, of course, they're like concentric circles that really overlap. But when we think about DEI, it has to have somewhat separate strategies, right? Because... You can't do the Noah's Ark way of diversity, where you have two of everything, right? Check, check, check. We got we got diversity, or we look representative of our patients and families. Great, but do those different subpopulations do they feel like their work matters? Do they feel like they have equal say in a meeting or in a decision point as a team member? Are they representative in the leadership position? Are they being promoted, retained, recruited, et cetera? So it's so insufficient just to look at just the D part. And oftentimes, I think it's the easiest, to be honest, right? Because it's a numbers game. But really to ensure this idea of inclusion, like you said, the sense of belonging, right? And how can we be curious enough to avoid judgment and to really get to know each other? And that, to me, is such a big part of inclusion and what drives, I think, company culture and then attracts the diversity that we want to see. And then finally, the equity piece is really, to me, the accountability piece. Are we ensuring that these diverse groups Are having equal equitable access to resources in terms of outcomes? Do they look similar, right? How are we supporting folks knowing that everyone's starting from a very different place, but giving them that equal experience is going to require some equitable approaches and initiatives and programming?
1: Can you share a time when you've seen... A personal account of something that went really well that you thought, wow, like this is what it's about. This is what I'm trying to get created with the work that I'm doing versus like a time that it didn't go in sort of the way that you would have hoped and kind of how those two sort of experiences may have impacted you or informed your own experience.
0: Everyone has very different value sets very different experiences, very different exposure, and to be frank, very different appetite to talk about DEI. So when we think about like mandatory trainings or like we want everyone to be well-versed and drink this Kool-Aid of why diversity is so important to us, you have to recognize that folks are just not ready for it. I tried to mandate, for example, DEI training across the board. And what I quickly realized is that it became very superficial and not sustainable. I had folks coming into my office like, hey, look, I got like three BIPOC people to apply for this job and I'm going to hire this one person. And you're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 let's back up. That, first of all, is illegal. We're not advocating any kind of quota system, but rather the spirit of this hiring process is really to evaluate and check our own individual biases and how they really interplay and come out during the decision-making process of a search committee, right? That was the exercise, not to check off boxes and to get an award for having and hiring a BIPOC person. So that's one area where I quickly realized, hey, if people don't understand the why of what we're doing, this can have a lot of unintended negative consequences. So I quickly scaled back on the mandatory trainings and really thought about, hey, what is going on now? Taking a more curious framework. Like if we envision not getting the most Ideal candidate in the traditional sense, like the smartest person or the most experienced person. But rather, if you look around the room and your team has XYZ, you have apples, you have oranges, you have grapes, like what are you really missing to add value? And then how can we make sure that we have the most diverse reach? Right, the broadest reach of applicants so that we can fulfill that role. And so, when I started taking more customized approaches to these conversations and really holding their hand through the process, I recognized that it had deeper roots, it was sustainable, and it was, in fact, meaningful across the board. So, that's one area. Another challenge we have is when we think about BIPOC representation in leadership positions. So, we started a leadership program, and really quickly, it was pretty clear and explicit that we wanted to attract diverse cohort of folks who would be interested in this. And then I was like, you know what, we can't have it be another like minoritized program. Right. Like, oh, these poor people who don't have the cultural capital to advance on their own. Let's bring them in, give them the skills. And it's this very pejorative, condescending, patriarchal model of providing them an experience. Rather, we are going to keep it competitive. And guess what? We're going to take out the bias in selecting folks so that we are representative and proportional to the enterprise it's honestly an honor, right, to be part of this program. And because we see the potential in you and we want to be challenged as an enterprise of what we're missing to identify talent, we, we're we going to have a more mutual and symbiotic relationship. So that's an area where it evolved over time. And I really think investing in our talent in this way and, and recognizing and being humble enough to know that we can learn something from this process too.
1: Right. Identifying what is missing. And then like you said, I think understanding the intention behind what we're doing, not just the checking of the box, is really the power of the work, it sounds like. And I think that's hard to get people to pause because, you know, I think so many times in healthcare, people are running around trying to do the work of many people. Now we have this huge retention crisis that's going on in our industry. How do you get people to pause and remember the intention behind the work,
0: Yeah. I think we have to see them. We have to validate what they are doing. We have to celebrate the wins and we have to humanize all of this and and feel like we're all part of something bigger And you're right. The stats are so alarming, right? 40,000 or so full-time RN shortage across the state. How are we going to fill this gap of what we need in terms of um, demand and the supply of nursing? We're still navigating pay equity. Women aren't being paid, what, like 82 cents to the man's dollar. I mean, we are still dealing with a lot of these crisis moments and in those times, especially in healthcare, where we want to fix everything, I totally get it. At, at some moment, though, we need to pause. And I think about that one movie during the COVID pandemic. I've been really showing my kids all these old movies and avatars, one of them. And the way they greet each other is by saying, I see you. And at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, we do these excellence rounds where some of the leadership go to different units and we just listen. Like what's working, what's not working? Or how are you today? And what we noticed is so many times at the beginning, people are like, oh, we don't know what to say. Are you after a problem or a solution? Or do you want something pragmatic? And then once we just sat there and was like, no, really, how are you doing? Tell me about the case that you're at right now. And they were able to articulate the challenges or express, hey, we would really love this one extra thing. Can we feed, for example, the families and not just the patients? Or can we please get some extra hours or, or information about dealing with certain kinds of cultures, right? These asks are so minimal. And yet when we were able to listen and say, yes, I see you, I see that you struggled today and you weren't able to come in because you've been doing back-to-back shifts and you are exhausted. And we want to just thank you for being here. I mean, it changes the entire tenor of that conversation. And I love rounding because of this. It grounds us on what matters. And what matters is that people just want to be seen, heard, understood. And even if you don't agree with them, you can still support them. And I think that is just absolutely key to all that we do in in healthcare. I will say that that
1: seeing someone going beyond the, the Disney movie, seeing someone is really hard work because we have to put our ego aside and our agenda aside to really... Look in someone's eyes and meet them where they are. Getting people to be able to do that is, is important so that quality care can be delivered that goes way beyond just the clinical experience, but it rather goes into the whole human experience, like you were saying, and the things that they're asking for with the meals for families or education, really knowing what they need.
0: And we can't fix it. And necessarily at that moment, when you're telling me all the things that are going wrong or that you are frustrated with, we might not be able to offer you a solution. And that is so hard for leaders to sit with because we are so used to being reactionary, placing our worth and value based on providing solutions and immediate responsive solutions. And at the same time, we're humans. We make mistakes. There are some times where we have all the best of intentions and put out a policy and we think it's going to make your life so much greater. And in reality, the unintended consequence was that it didn't really think about X person or this kind of situation or whatever it is. We are fallible as humans and systems. And so when we're able to just take a pause, acknowledge, listen, get the feedback, and then just say, hey, we are going to be working on this and we'll get back to you. I think that is so real that people appreciate and respect that. We do not have all the answers all the time, except don't tell my kids that. I tell them I do. But for the most part, you know, I think when you're willing to be vulnerable and admit your mistakes, when you're willing to sit in just the discomfort of not knowing the solution, I think that's when you really garner that connection and that feeling of, hey, at least you're in this with me. Thank you for being here. I think that that comes from a real place of bravery, being able
1: to sort of express vulnerability in that way. When you think back to your own leadership journey, is there something you can point to that's given you the voice and the courage to be able to kind of do this type of work in this way?
0: I think it has to do with recognizing and finding mentors and kind of creating what like the Harvard Business Review talks about your personal board of directors. I had several mentors along the way and the ones that I feel are the most important in my life are the ones that were willing to say i don't have all the answers and so when there is this level of vulnerability it creates you know what we are honestly really after currently in terms of psychological safety or wellness it creates this idea that hey they don't have it all together either and you know we can help each other in dimensions and you don't have to be an expert in any one Can
1: you share a little bit with our listeners about how do we create cultures of forgiveness?
0: I love this question. It's honestly an area and a value system that I strive for and I still work on today. So I am by no means an expert in forgiveness, but I think it is absolutely a critical part of this equation. As you can imagine in current society, there's so much going on in terms of a cancel culture, right? We don't want to say things because we're worried that it's going to be a microaggression or we we don't want to make a mistake because I don't want to be labeled as racist, sexist, homophobic. You can insert any is there, right? And so people are in a situation where even though I I preach over and over, you will make a mistake. You will perpetrate a microaggression because you are a product of this society. You are a product of a history of racism. We will mess up. And your question about how do you cultivate and create a culture of forgiveness has to do with the fact that, A, we can reconcile and sit with it, right? And that we are willing to be transparent and honest enough to grapple with that mistake. I think forgiveness is absolutely an intentional and strategic act, and it's fully voluntary. I, I think you are gifted forgiveness, but if you're not ready to forgive, I think that it creates a situation where it's a lose-lose on both ends.
1: And it certainly seems connected to the feeling seen concept, because I'm not sure if you can forgive someone without really seeing them and knowing sort of their intention and understanding kind of where they were coming from. Can you share a time when you really felt seen for who you wanted to be or who, what you wanted to be seen for?
0: We practitioners are still navigating this space. And so when I feel the most seen is when I'm offering material and let's say I do hit a blunder. For example, I've given a presentation and I was explaining that, you know, microaggressions happen. And when you are feeling the microaggression, this first step is for you to not feel like you're going crazy or that you're crazy. And really acknowledge that this dynamic if especially if you felt like a tinge or like oh that didn't feel good that it is truly a microaggression and it's okay. And I use that word crazy super liberally. And then after that workshop someone came up to me and was just like that was you know such an incredible workshop it was really informative you gave me such good practical advice and may I offer you some feedback and I was like of course that would be amazing. And they're like, you know, you use that word crazy. And, you know, I think that triggers folks who are in that neurodiversity world, who are experiencing cognitive disabilities. And I wonder if we could use a different word in the future. And I was like, wow, that was such an incredible gift of feedback because I did not think twice about using the word crazy. And I think it took so much courage for that person who I didn't even know to come up and introduce themselves and offer me that gift, I felt so seen. I felt like they understood my intention of wanting to talk about this really important uh, topic and they wanted to elevate my game. So to me, feedback is, is how I feel seen, is if you were paying attention and you cared enough about me and the efficacy of my work that you're willing to be uncomfortable in offering a feedback to some stranger who's supposed to be the subject matter expert. Wow, bravo and kudos to you. I'm not surprised, but I really admire
1: that you're sharing that when you feel the most seen, it's when someone gives you the gift of feedback and really cares about uplifting your game, like you said. And I think that that just shows a lot about who you are. And also, I think it empowers our listeners. I know it inspires me to think about feeling seen so much that someone wants to help you and gives you that feedback when I know that this culture is such that sometimes feedback can be very uncomfortable. And I think in healthcare, we do have a a bit of a culture around, let's give a ton of feedback and not that many positives. And let's kind of see what happens to our team members with the hope that they'll just keep getting better when really what happens is they kind of feel demoralized because all they hear is
0: feedback. Absolutely. And and feedback is in both forms. I think positive too. You know, I share this story a lot because it's so personal. But my son, Luca, who's like a Lego master, he loves building Legos and he's been doing those like 12, 16 plus Lego sets as early as eight, you know. And he was in his room. I bought him this White House Lego. I'm like, yes, this is gonna take him days. You know, good investment of money and time. And then, of course, you know, just a few hours later, I hear him saying, yay, me. And I'm like, what? What did he say? And he's like, yay, me. Like he was celebrating in his room by himself with his Lego set. So I come down the stairs and I go in the room and I was like, Luca, what are you doing? And he's like, I finished. And it's amazing. Yay, me. And I share this story because I think it is so beautiful that he's able to do something Not need external validation and recognize how impressive and how beautiful and how accomplished he feels at that moment to say, Yay, me. And to me, that is another form of feedback. We can give feedback to ourselves. When are moments where we can say, Hey, I did a really good job? And sometimes no one's witnessing that. But we can have these yay me moments and I think we need to develop a culture where not only are we asking for constructive feedback of what we can do better and improve on, but we can also identify all the things that went well and why did those go well and how can we replicate that? I think we have to be explicit about the wins that we have. I love that yay me. I
1: think that's, that's a good thing we can all try to incorporate into our internal chatter that when we talk to ourselves throughout the day. It's great. So thank you, Luca, for that. This show is about recognizing moments between people that really impact them. Can you share a moment that either you personally experienced or that you witnessed that changed the course of where things were going, either for you or for this other person?
0: When I first started at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, I had a doctor, an ER doctor come talk to me and he's gone through a lot of challenges. He is in a leadership position and he, you know, was so humble in welcoming me to the CHLA family and went on to, you know, send me some poems he had written during COVID and just some of the experiences he had. And as a white cisgender male, he really was committed to growing in this space, but he went above and beyond and went and he was he's he's jewish he identifies as jewish and that's his personal religious belief he went to a black evangelical church to understand what that was about why they're so passionate what are what's happening in terms of that actual service how is it different than the way he experienced his own religion then he went to a prison to really understand like he went above and beyond to really personalize and expand his repertoire of experiences so that he can actually empathize and really see someone else's perspective and experience. And to me, I think that is exactly how we need to take it to the next level. We can give that lip service anytime. Of course, who would say, at least publicly, I don't believe in diversity. I don't believe in equity. I don't believe in inclusion. Yet when push comes to shove and it becomes individualized, are you willing to look at the gaps in where potentially your biases may manifest and fill those proactively. And I think the answer is super hard. And that's why this DEI work is really hard. In the equity space, I hear this all the time. Yes, I believe merit matters the most. And I still understand that we all started from different places. But are you willing to give up your privilege to advance someone else? So when push comes to shove, I think this idea of actionable allyship, actionable change, right? actionable learning, and this commitment to exposing yourself to these ideals and values is really so inspiring, to be honest. And for him, it was so transformative.
1: And have you noticed that since he exposed himself to these new experiences, that he's been different when he interacts with patients or families that might come to him with different sort of lived experience than he had personally?
0: Absolutely. I think his curiosity has even peaked more and i think as humans we are quick to judge and less to be curious and he is just he approaches situations of the why like tell me more so i can understand what am i missing here why can i not be on the same page as you and so i think he definitely takes a pause tries to understand someone else's perspective because he realized that until he did that it was all lip service and so the way he treats the patients, his colleagues, just any issue as it relates to identity, he takes that pause and goes above and beyond to really immerse himself in knowing what he doesn't know. We are biological you know, beings. And if we're not growing, we're dead, right? We are constantly evolving whether you want to or not. And I think we can choose the directions that we go we can choose to expose ourselves to different experiences we can really activate that change in a very strategic and intentional way and i think we should when you think about leaders and having particular qualities or a- taking
1: action in a certain way what are a couple of things that you think that leaders can be doing now to promote a sense of value and belonging so that there are more impactful Human connections within the healthcare experience.
0: I keep going back to that we are fallible humans and systems. We will make mistakes. The American Psychological Association just released their official statement of how they were complicit in racism for so long. We'll always be making these mistakes. And I think leaders who are willing to be that vulnerable to reveal that and set that tone and expectation, not as to say, if you are biased or if you are going to say a microaggression, but when you are biased or how you were complicit in a conversation that that ended up with someone feeling a microaggression, it's, it's not if anymore. It really is how are we shaped constantly by these forces of racism or by inequalities and being willing to be the first one to admit that, to role model uh, what it looks like to request and receive and enact feedback, I think is absolutely key. So true. It's really interesting when you say it sort of in
1: that way, because it allows, I think people, when they say, when I make a mistake, when I do these things, it allows people to feel, again, we can use this word again, the scene, in a way where they're like, yeah, like you are going to do that. and And I've maybe noticed you did that. And now I have an opening. To be able to say, hey, you did do that thing you said you might do. Just want to give you the heads up. And that, I think, is where humanity can be so beautiful too. That's really where the connection can live. Because I, I think what I've noticed is when I've made mistakes and, and done things that I wasn't proud of in the moment and then I've said it later and I've been like, you know what, I really messed up when I said that. I've noticed that it, it makes my relationship with the person who I had interacted with even closer
0: nothing breaks me more emotionally than when I experience grace from someone. When I make a mistake and even if they call me out and then I request forgiveness and they are graceful with me and they give me another chance, time and time again, I break down emotionally. And I think this even... Pertains to my kids. There are times where I am at my wits' end and I am yelling and screaming. And then later on, I'm like, that was not the best self that I'd like to be. And I go back and I'm like, hey, that was not okay actually to be yelling. And I'm really sorry. And they're like, that's okay, mommy. Do you want to play shoots and ladders? You know, it's so, such a beautiful gift and something we should be practicing more and more because that grace and forgiveness and compassion is. Once we can receive it, we can give it. And it also
1: promotes, I think what you were saying earlier, how we're always growing. So try, fail, iterate. You know, try, fail, iterate. And the more we can try and mess up, the
0: more we can grow. Yeah, I love that. This this nonprofit organization puts out a failure report every quarter. Instead of celebrating all their successes, they talk about everything that went wrong and what they learned from it. And I find that to be very extreme, but so inspirational. And and that is how we cultivate and create a, a, a psychologically safe environment to innovate and to try new things. And you know what? Let's grow. Let's practice and know that we might make a mistake. But I find that to be so inspirational.
1: Well, this conversation has been so inspirational. So thank you so much, Hannah. Was there anything else that you wanted to share before I get into the speed round?
0: The only thing I'd end with is it's been such an honor to go through truly a journey, and it's not linear in any way, but this journey of diversity, equity, inclusion, and I really don't think we'll ever achieve a full destination, but I think what matters is how we're traversing this journey together, how many people we can bring along the way, and that we're willing to face challenges. And it takes a village to do these things. And it takes a team. And it takes more than just one person always having to tout the DEI value or the goal or call people out. It really does take a full community. And I'll just leave with the quote from James Baldwin, who he says that not everything that is spaced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is spaced. I love that. Thank you for adding that. Okay.
1: We're going to get into the speed round now, Hannah. This is an exciting part where we take a beat and I'm going to ask you some questions that are a bit out of the box, but that's okay. And we want to get to know the personal side of Hannah's song. So first question, Hannah, can you share something with our listeners that less than 10% of your work family knows about you?
0: That when I was a kid growing up, I had a friend who really loved country music And I really thought that I'd be the first Asian country superstar and I never got a chance because I can't sing, but I I thought I'd be a good addition to the Dixie Chicks or to the chicks they call themselves now. You never know, Hannah. (laughs) I love that.
1: (laughs) That is fantastic. And actually one of our other questions is if you could pick a skill that you could be unbelievably good at, what would it be? And I, I don't know if you're going to say singing, but you might have to pick two if you go with that one.
0: It's so funny. I've always wanted a demonstrable skill. I think my skills are behind the computer or on an Excel sheet. I've always wanted something that I could showcase. I think I would actually pick to be the best athlete in a given sport, so like the best swimmer. And I, I was a really competitive swimmer until we hit puberty and everyone outgrew me by like six or seven inches. But I would love to have some kind of demonstrable skill like that. What's your favorite extracurricular outside of work? During COVID, I started to try new things. Everything that you could potentially do on a virtual setting, I tried. So I tried to learn guitar. I tried to learn how to watercolor and I tried new recipes and cooking. And so I, I would say I'm a very YOLO minded, you only live once kind of person. And I love having experiences that I've never had before. Again, back, maybe back to this diversity mindset is. Having different experiences, having new experiences, trying to learn a skill, and so my extracurriculars are really around that. If I've already done it, if I've already been there, I don't want to go there again. I never watch a movie twice. I never read a book twice. I'm ready for the next thing. I hear you, Hannah. Over COVID, I I follow some
1: uh, ballet dancers on Instagram, and I took a a couple ballet classes that were being offered on Instagram in my living room, which was really fun. But I can't imagine what I look like doing that class. (laughs) That's the best. You just turn the video off and off you go. That's right. So you said that you will try anything once, but did any of those things stick and will you continue doing any of them?
0: Yeah. I love watercoloring. I think it's so great. I was always told my brother had that creative side of the brain and yet I've been playing with watercolor and trying to tap that creative side. I also am continuing the guitar and the one song I want to play is Blackbird. And I, I've been trying to learn on YouTube how to finger pick that. That's a
1: beautiful song. That is actually one of my, my family songs that we like to sing together.
0: But I feel like I thought you were going to go Dixie Chicks on that one. <laughs> no, Well, maybe next. Maybe next song I'll learn something country. But my partner's not such a fan of country music, so I got to explore other horizons here.
1: Might have to practice like in in the basement or, or something
0: <laughs> yeah exactly he plays drums so maybe we could start our own little family band we are kind of like the brady bunch and so it could be like sound of music another another great old movie that i made the kids watch during covid
1: make mistakes learn from them give yourself grace and ask for forgiveness i'm rebecca metter thanks for listening to moments move us Remember, when you take the time to really see someone, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to
0: follow wherever you get your audio.